Hello and welcome to Decoding the Gurus, the podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer, and we try our best to understand what they're talking about. I'm Matt Brown, and with me, again, is Chris Kavanagh. Hey, Chris. Hello, Matt. What's this? I'm sorry, I don't have a good anecdote or metaphor or parable to lead you in. I'm sorry, I'm tapped out. That's actually good because that last parable was so deep that I've just spent the intervening weeks reflecting on it, looking at it from different angles. (laughs) What could the cloak mean? And who is this wind character? You know, there's so many different angles that you can look at from that. I'm frankly glad that you're not hitting me with another exquisitely crafted parable for which to overload my sense-making apparatus. Well, it's a good thing because you clearly haven't finished processing that one. I didn't think it would be that challenging. Yeah, keep thinking on it, Chris. The truth is there waiting for you to discover it. Yeah, like a beautiful wind blowing away an annoying sun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that, that metaphor works, Matt. Don't, just you puzzle and think about that. What does that mean? Has that ever happened in the world? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, in other news for me, I, it's very exciting. I, I passed a Twitter milestone, Chris. I Last time I checked, I had cracked the 3,000 follower mark on Twitter. I remember those days back years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first thing I did, obviously, was to go and check your follower count to see whether I'd surpassed you yet. And I found that you've got over 6,000 followers, which I think everyone can agree, all reasonable people would agree with me in saying that is total bullshit. Even me. Why do you have so many followers? As somebody suggested, I think there's probably at least 50% are just hate follows. (laughs) So that (laughs) you can probably pick them up yourself, Matt, if you just be more combative. I have to say, when you said the first thing I did, I... I don't know why, but it popped into my head that you were going to finish that sentence with was, I called my mother. <laughs> said, Mom, you'll never guess what's happened today. I finally made it. Forget the professorship. Forget the stunning success of the Cody Nagurus, which I regale you with weekly. I've hit 3,000 followers on Twitter. Mom, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think of me now? <laughs> yeah. Whenever I mention my online antics to my mom, she, she seems to worry that I'm going to get fired or that bad people on the internet will come and find me. Well, for legitimate concerns. Yes. Yeah. So your mom is wise beyond her years. <laughs> yeah. I guess so. Yeah. She, she's a warrior. She doesn't have my devil may care attitude. And if I tweeted like you, she'd be really worried. That's for sure. Well, just wait till Eric Weinstein comes and hunts you down with his crack legal team in Australia. You'll be regretting your laissez-faire attitude then when you're in the gulag for your mean tweets directed at him. You called him a squid, Mm. Matt. You said his tweets (laughs) were like a squid squirting ink all over the place. That's dehumanization, Matt. It's one step away from genocide. Chris, Chris, I I looked into the law and apparently it's not liable if you honestly believe it. So I think I'm safe with the squid ink analogy to Eric's Oh, it was an analogy. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) He's literally (laughs) Well, in a a sense, isn't it almost like that? Just there's the tweet, Sam. (laughs) But we're not talking about the Weinsteins because we got that out of our system, Matt. We spoke 
with the psychologist Dave Pizarro, and he helped us wade through the murky waters of Weinstein world. And we got fairly universal positive feedback about that episode, except in some of the reviews that I'll read at the end of the podcast. But I know they're not gone for good. I know they're gone. I've already seen tweets, Matt. I know they're up to things, but I'm just, I'm not thinking about them. Just putting them out of my mind for the minute. Exactly. That's right. Move on. The best revenge is living well. <laughs> That's not what Conan said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm not going to say that, but the, what he actually said, because it may be construed as some people as a threat against their families and loved ones. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, just Conan had a different opinion. That's all I will say about what is good in life. The other thing that we need to cover is some upcoming stuff that we have in the next few weeks. This will all be filtering out over time. I'm going through a busy period at work, so we might expect some d- delays and whatnot. But, but you know, we'll basically be on our fortnightly schedule as usual. Um, and we're going to enter a season of self-help, a couple of episodes focusing on self-help type gurus from different areas, different disciplines. We're going to become better people. We are. Or we're going to tear down people who are trying to help others struggling with various issues. It's one of those two. One of those two, yes. yes. Yeah, we're going to make ourselves feel more adequate by taking down anyone that dares to give advice to anyone else. That's right. Just make fun of people who are trying to better themselves and optimize their personalities because that's what they deserve, right? Yeah, according to the reviews we'll read later, that is what we're up to. We're going to look at people like Brené Brown, the psychologist who we both don't know very much about, except that she has TED Talks and lots of people have suggested it to us. Apparently quite well regarded, but it'll be interesting to see. We can look at people that are well regarded. We'll also look at the famed dietitian and philosopher, Michaela Peterson, A little-known figure, her father has some notoriety online. She is a woman in her own right, as I often tell you, Matt. Peterson. Peterson. That name rings a bell. Where have I heard that name before? It's some lemon flavor that's just, you know, I don't know why. I've got a taste of lemon in the back of my throat, (laughs) an alchemical lemon. So, Michaela Peterson, that interesting character. We'll also be taking a look at a little-known figure, a fan favorite at the same time, one Sam Harris, author, public intellectual, moral philosopher of some description. In any case, we did get feedback whenever we covered his short intro segment, which we did in the special episode that we hadn't got the full grasp of what his app was about. And we were kind of challenged to make an effort. Um, I thought, We can introduce, Matt, a phenomenological ethnographic component drawing on my anthropological background. We're going to take part in this app, right? Do a a little bit Mm. of exploration for a month or 20 days or so. Just try it out. See if we can wake up. Yeah, yeah. It'll be lived experience. And I've already started. Have you started, Chris? I, I started. I've meditated for like a total of 10 minutes, which is a big step for me. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I'm i feeling more intimately connected to Sam Harris than I have been <laughs> whispering 
sweet meditation, nothing's in my ear. So we'll update on that when we get to that. But we're, look at this, we're being rigorous sense makers. We're doing things. We're being anthropological. Yeah. There is another episode, though, Matt, that we might want to update people on because people will maybe saying, wait a minute, season of self-help, wasn't there someone else that was supposed to be coming next before this episode? And what happened there? Yes. And that person is? Aaron Rabinowitz. We're not covering him as a guru. Not yet. Aaron's not got mm. big enough for us to take him down. Yeah, as long as he doesn't get ahead of his skis, he's safe. Uh, but he's joining us to help decode the crossover episode between Sovereign Nations, Michael O'Fallon, and New Discourses, and Internet Fuckwittery, James Lindsay. <laughs> the two of them, their special crossover episode we're doing with Aaron. We've recorded a big chunk of it, we're just not finished yet. It will be coming at some point. It'll probably interrupt the whole theme and you'll just have to live with that. It'll come when it's ready. <laughs> it will. It will. And we're also going to be talking to Julian Walker from Conspirituality as well. That kind of fits with the season of self-help because yeah, it does. those guys are right into it. But but we won't necessarily be talking about self-help with him. So it's going to be a bit random. Our fans know what we're like. It fits with the theme of being a delayed project because we started talking to Julian like months ago and haven't finished recording with him. So we will get that out and much apologies to Julian. Very good. Any more housekeeping for us to take care of? No, we're done. And because we're not going to talk about the Weinsteins this week or any other gurus, we did agree that we could have a little bit, just a small condensed portion of the introduction for our own mini Rants. This is exercising our demons, Matt, getting it out of our system. Would you like to go first or shall I? I'll let you go first. Get it off your chest. Let it rip. Let it all out. I'm going to do it on here because I suspect to some extent this is the audience that I need to be speaking to about this matter. As we covered on the pod here, there is the topic of the lab leak, which has come up and which it's Fair to say I have some critical opinions about the way that the lab leak community have promoted their theory about the likelihood of a lab leak origin for the coronavirus. It's quite an esoteric topic, really, but it's, it still comes up now and then in the news and endlessly on my Twitter timeline. So I've been invited to debate Yuri Dagan, as I mentioned on the Dave Pizarro episode on Rebel Wisdom, which is topical because we're covering content for Rebel Wisdom this week. And I may take that up, as I mentioned, because I quite enjoy interacting with Yuri. I think we could have a productive discussion. However, there are a variety of people on Twitter and Reddit and various social media platforms that want to tag me into every fucking piece of news about the lab like every time some doe head comes out with an article some title saying lab leak now more likely or Fauci lied or something i get tagged in and people are like oh chris what do you think now i mean it when i say in general i'm happy to not discuss the lab leak with people for like the next year to five years uh, and we can come back and look and see whose priors were all askew and whatever, and we can judge it. Because 
we, that's how long it's going to take. It's going to be years, not months, until we find out the answers. And I don't want to get tagged in every fucking email trap from people. So that's that's my wrap. I'm done. <laughs> the thing that annoys you is the treatment of every little meaningless bit of information that comes along as this is the smoking gun. This is the smoking gun now. It just has that conspiratorial flavor of Hunter Biden or Hillary's emails or 9-11 or whatever. And it's tiring and it's boring. Matt, I'll tell you a thing people didn't tag me in. They didn't tag me in two new review articles that came out that reviewed the evidence for the origins of the coronavirus such as it exists. Did a very good job of it thorough accounting of what evidence exists and they took the arguments made in favor of the lab leak and addressed whether they're convincing or not and the overall conclusion surprise was the same as it was before that there's a possibility that it could be a lab leak but the a majority of evidence points towards natural origin and that's where the majority of researchers lie Nobody highlights any of these articles. I'll read the literature. There, there. I'll do the thing, but you don't need to tag me. And when they do tag me, Matt, I then get my replies flooded by the fucking lab league dregs who are like saying, oh, you don't want your filter bubble pierced and all this. Chris, Chris, there's this little button called mute thread. And let me tell you, it is your friend. Use it. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll have my little rant and I'll try to keep it shorter than yours. And my little rant is the thing that's been all over my news feed. Apparently, Australia is now subject to a repressive tyranny. We've got a military taking over. All our rights are being taken away. It's like a boot stamping into our face again and again for all eternity. Or is it, Chris? This apparently is what's going on, and it's been the very much hot take amongst Americans of the libertarian or right-wing variety or just anti-COVID, anti-lockdown stripe. And it covers the entire spectrum from Alex Jones to like half-out gurus and people like Tim Pool, who's just the absolute worst. I think it's actually started with Fox News who kicked this whole thing off and then just the rest of the ecosystem picked it up. Well, the least crazy or the most reasonable version I've heard of this take is from a guy called Connor Friedersdorf. He's a journalist and he's okay. Wrote in the Atlantic that Australia has traded away too much of our liberty with these draconian emergency restrictions. And it just really annoys me, Chris, all of these takes because they portray absolutely no understanding of what's going on in Australia. What's happening is that they're projecting their own paranoid wet dreams onto us, which is really quite annoying. So, for Americans who are listening to this, let me just say that there's probably a lot of little details you don't know. One is that Australia hasn't had access to the vaccines till very recently. Uptake is really strong. There's very little vaccine hesitancy. And so we're increasing the vaccination rate really quickly. At the same time, Delta has come to town. So we pretty much got through the entire pandemic almost scot-free with only a 1,000 deaths total to COVID and very few infections. In my part of Australia, in Queensland, we had almost no lockdowns either. So we've had a blessed existence, really. But the situation we find ourselves in now is that COVID is getting out of control. 
the travel restrictions that are mainly focused on New South Wales and Sydney are not strict enough because it's not actually stopping Delta in its tracks. Unless we keep that up, unless we implement the travel restrictions, and yes, lockdowns are terrible. We hate them just as much as everyone else, but we're not stupid. And we realize that if we don't do that, then in a couple of months, the situation here will be like the situation in Florida or the situation in Texas or Alabama or places like that, where you've got a largely unvaccinated population and you've got Delta running right. And we don't actually have the level of um, hospital intensive care and so on that America has. And yeah, we're trying to avoid those deaths. So there's, there's a portion of the commentariat that see this as like creeping fascism, as creeping repression, that as if the main thing that our state premiers are, are dying to do is control us all with the military and passports and retinal scans and checkpoints and so on. When It's just crazy. That is the last thing that any of them would want to do. Don't get me wrong, Australian politicians are just as incompetent as politicians anywhere in the world. But I can tell you what they don't want to do is implement some kind of Chinese authoritarian surveillance state. No, they're centre-right moderates. They had to be dragged to the lockdowns kicking and screaming. Really what their instinct is, is to not do that. The idea that it's like a trick, the thin edge of the wedge that really what the government wants to do is is implement all sorts of controls and this is an excuse to, to take away our liberties, that is conspiratorial nonsense. It's a temporary restriction that's supported by the large majority of Australians and it makes perfect sense given the situation that we're in. It's got a clear deadline and that it's going to be in place until we can get 70 or 80% of the population vaccinated, at which point Everyone in Australia will be looking forward to ending it as soon as we possibly can. The thing that annoys me is, one, this sort of conspiratorial paranoia about the government dying to take away our freedoms and liberties. That's not what the Australian government wants to do, right? They're, mm. they're a bunch of idiots, but that's not their secret plan. And the second thing that annoys me is that projection of your own ideological hang-ups onto us, which it just doesn't fit. Your issues are not our issues, so deal with them at home. Okay, I'm done. I sympathize, but I really think it sounds like you're just trying to cope with the reality that you're returning to your penal culinary roots. <laughs> this all sounds like a coping mechanism, and I, I, you know what's going on. You've seen the, the videos and the images. You've seen your friends get dragged around kicking and screaming about their barbecues and shrimps. <laughs> I've seen these videos being shared of Australian police tackling some guy in the street and holding them down and forcibly vaccinating them. And that's getting shared around. <laughs> that's what's going on, Matt. Just be careful. What's, what's that noise? Oh, Matt, they're, they're coming. They're there. They've, they've heard the podcast. <laughs> so. Remember my name, Chris. Remember my name. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's our little rant yeah. for this week about the things that have been annoying us on the internet. <laughs> it will not be a recurring feature. It's just there's been particularly annoying things this month. Absolutely. Shall we get to business, Chris? Speaking of annoying things, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it's time to turn to the gurus of the week. In this case, we have 
a pair of gurus or or do we we'll see how fair it is to describe them both in this sense but it's content from rebel wisdom which has come up recently it's a channel or an outlet dedicated to providing sense making in our fragmented media ecosystem it's alternative media style thing and the most recognizable face and i think the founder of it is david fuller who is a ex-journalist from bbc and channel four and like mainstream journalism but now focuses on the rebel wisdom channel and he's recently been doing a lot of the coverage of the dark horse podcast and criticisms thereof he is where yuri dagan was hosted for the two hour interview detailing the problems he's also offered a bunch of articles that are highly critical of brett you've had a chat with him recently haven't you Yes, I did have an extended chat with him, which was uh, ostensibly supposed to be about the lab leak hypothesis, ironically, but we ended up kind of talking about other topics related to mainstream media and alternative media and conspiracy theorists and so on. I like David. I have my criticisms and disagreements of the way that he approaches things, but I think within the alternative media ecosystem. He's one of the very few people that consistently asks critical questions of his guests. And we'll see this in the content that we're looking at today. I don't always agree with David, but I think he's a decent guy to put my bias cards up from. I came across Rebel Wisdom and David uh, a while ago now. I think it might have even been you who recommended me some coverage of London Real and Brian Rose, the dodgy character that was running that. The coverage there was good and interesting. That's a whole guru-esque scam cult thing in itself. I guess you'd say he's sort of part of this sort of sense-making sphere. It's kind of his brand is sense-making. And to be fair to David, he did in an interview recently make a kind of self-aware jab that he thinks people will be sick of hearing the word sense-making before <laughs> too long. And he is correct <laughs> on, that, on that point. I also think that the origins of the channel are that he produced a documentary around the Jordan Peterson phenomenon. And it was very well received. It was shared on Jordan Peterson's channel and so on as well. Well received by Jordan Peterson's fans, I should say, and maybe more broadly. It was generally positive. Um, inclined towards him and i would say however that david has been willing to put critical questions to jordan and so on and i think as he's discussed in interviews that that may have cost him the ability to access those figures so he's an interesting character and what's going on at the channel of rebel wisdom is also an interesting thing to look at although that's kind of related to what we're doing today, but we're not specifically focusing on that. No, that's right. He's the interviewer. And who is he interviewing? So he is interviewing a person called Jordan Hall, who is another YouTuber, a smaller channel in the kind of sense-making sphere. He's collaborated on Rebel Wisdom and he produces videos and essays and that kind of thing. 
they're having a conversation about Jordan having an interview or discussion with another guy who is a proprietarian called Brandon Hayes. So the context here, <laughs> it's fucking inception level, right? That's right. And we're having a conversation about them having a conversation about the conversation yeah. that one of them had with this other guy. Yeah, it's really, it's clear what's going on. It's pretty meta. And we admit this is meta even for us. <laughs> so let's go on the Inception road trip. You have Jordan Hall, who on his channel interviews a guy called Brandon Hayes. Now, Brandon Hayes is a proprietarian. What's proprietarians? We're not going to go into it deeply, but suffice to say, these are not good people. These are far-right anti-Semitic individuals who follow the philosophy of this weird guy called Curtis Doolittle. It sounds like a name that wouldn't exist, <laughs> but in, in any case, we don't need to dive into his philosophy. Suffice to say, it's far-right, it's anti-Semitic and it's shit. <laughs> yep. So Brandon Hayes is a follower of this, also an openly professed fascist. So this is the kind of person we're dealing with. Why Jordan Hall having a conversation with a guy who's an anti-Semitic fascist? There's obvious reasons that you might be concerned. Are. So David, being a friend and collaborator of Jordan, wants to discuss some issues that he had with that interview where he thinks he failed to properly contextualize why this guy is controversial or challenge him or that kind of thing. And they have a discussion on Rebel Wisdom about the interview that Jordan did. This video is not listed on Rebel Wisdom. It's embedded in a, a Medium article that David produced, but he didn't make the video publicly listed on the channel, presumably because they don't want that much attention drawn to the nature of the conversation. And you'll be able to see why as we go through it. Hmm. That's what we're dealing with here. Does that make sense, Matt? It does make sense. And I think this context is important to be aware of, but as we'll see, it's not really necessary to get a full description of what proprietarians are or exactly what the deal is with this guy, Brandon Hayes. I mean, I think the only thing people need to know is that it's kind of serious stuff. It's a little bit dark. This guy did have a very polite sense-making type conversation with Brandon Hayes. And David Fuller wants to ask him some critical questions about that decision. You know, it's easy to understand what the issue is here, I think, Chris. And I think that's important. Yeah. One other point. There's a community called Game B. And we're not, I'm not going to get into it, but this is another set of alternative sense makers or so on, which has involvement of the Weinsteins, because of course it does. If you remember, Brett had a big kick up during the election because he was temporarily banned from Facebook. They restored it and said it was made in error, but he went through being silenced because of Unity 2020. And while the specifics of that event remain unclear, it could just have been an error or whatever, it's relevant context that this group called the Propertarians were at the same time, simultaneous to this, infiltrating a bunch of the Facebook groups for GMP, IDW types, and they were essentially trying to take them over 
and sway people into proprietarian type ideas. Then there was a kind of purging by Facebook of kicking out all these accounts and it involved a bunch of Game B accounts being temporarily banned and so on. It's likely, or it's possible at least, that those were related to those bannings. And notable that this event happened and there was very little coverage of it when it kind of fits very nicely the narrative that people have about the IDW or the alternative ecosystem being a gateway to like fascism and far right mm. ideology. And on the one hand here, you have a group that's explicitly, that's what their aim is. And they're going into those groups and they're seemingly able to exist and gain moderator positions or try to gain influence to some extent in those communities without being kicked out. So that fits what the kind of left wing view would be. But I would note that people were detected and kicked out. And there's been a clear, that's not what we're about. There are connections there, there are vulnerabilities, but there also does seem to be a distinction where people, that's not what they are signing up for necessarily with those groups. Gotcha. All important context. So this is the serious issue at play. Let's get in there and see what this guy has got to say for himself. Probably a good clip to get started is just the framing of the interview and what the concern on the parts of David is for Jordan. I don't think anyone uh, disagreed or thought that you shouldn't have talked to Brandon, but most, I'd say from my perspective, it was almost universal that the way the interview was done um, did not give the people watching any idea who Brandon was. And they they felt that it was, I guess, the, the word that came back a few times was irresponsible. The, the, the impression I certainly got when I watched it was that you and Brandon were pretty much on the same page on most things and that you were essentially validating him as, a, as an individual within this wider space. Hmm. So I, I thought that's a good clip to highlight that David is pretty directly hmm. putting the criticisms towards him. Yeah, he's raising the concern, yeah. And I think this is a pretty salient point that it actually is reasonable to interview extremists and people with highly partisan views. An important thing if you're going to do that is that you should highlight that you're not endorsing their views or that you're giving them the chance to appear simply more reasonable than they are, right? There's like a difference between doing an interview where you allow people to outline their worldview, uh, even if it's a malignant, bigoted worldview, and you do that just to give them the kind of rope to hang themselves with. That's one thing. But it's different if you someone has that kind of worldview and instead you discuss with them what their favorite movies are and then talk about philosophy. Yeah, and the context here is important too, which is that these groups do have this track record of concealing the really hardcore red pill stuff, a bit like Scientologists do, and lead with stuff that's more palatable and present a more acceptable kind of face and worm their in, way in that way because they know very well that the harder edge of, of what they're pushing is going to cause a reaction. So, yeah, it's an important thing to do. And even someone like Louis Thoreau, when he's doing his, you know, he's a good example. Yeah, he talks to and spends time with 
very unpleasant people like neo-Nazis, and he does humanize them in uh, a very real way. But at the same time, he doesn't endorse them and whitewash them, and he does actually make his disagreements with them pretty clear. What David Fuller here is, is pointing out is that's not what Jordan Hall did. No, there's another clip before we get on to Jordan's response where he kind of highlights again the issue. This is later in the episode when Jordan has responded a couple of times, but I'll just play that because I think it illustrates in a quite neat way where he sees the problem lying. I see myself as a curator. I see that I have a lot less authoritative, um, I'm less of an epistemic authority than I think you are. And there's an interesting question here because I don't know whether you've necessarily asked for that authority that I think you have. But a lot of people who were watching that interview, when I read the read the comments, were not aware of who Brandon was. And they've got they've come out with some impression that this guy is speaking the truth, that he's worth talking to, and that he has some ideas related to genetics that aren't entirely clear. And I don't think that most people have got an idea about what they actually believe and, and, and who the proprietarians really are. And I think, I mean, I don't want to kind of just scare quotes, anti-Semitism, scare quotes, all this stuff, but if you read a lot of what they talk about, it's it's third rail for a reason. It's dangerous for a oh. reason. This is setting up <laughs> the, the, the criticism, right? These are pretty straightforward critiques, is my point. Yeah, that's right. That's the lesson to be drawn here. That David Fuller, to his credit, challenges Jordan Hall here at the beginning quite clearly. What's interesting is Jordan Hall's responses, I think. Here comes one of them. This is responding to what his goal was in doing the interview. I did not come into that with a hoping to achieve. Um, more like a, almost like a method, maybe a better way of putting it. And the method here was something like, did it feel like the conversation could be had? Did it feel like there was a way to hold the conversation that, um, hard to explain, wouldn't break? That makes any sense. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that for an initial justification, Matt? Not wanting to break the conversation. Yeah. I'm not quite sure where he's going with that. Yeah. I like that clip because it basically highlights there's no goal, just a method. <laughs> there should be a goal when deciding who to speak with. If you have a method, you're still making these decisions about who you talk to and who you don't. So it just seems a way to sidestep the issue. Well, it reflects this this real focus on where the conversation is the thing. The ability to engage with each other is kind of an end in itself. But yeah, let's dig deeper, Chris. Yeah, and we'll get on to the sacred nature almost transferred to relationships and conversations. Here's another justification for why he would be willing to engage with this kind of character. The last piece was, did it feel that I noticed that there was something deeper that was actually asking me to share it? And the answer actually was fear. So I actually felt a felt sense of fear, a felt sense that there was something about sharing this that would potentially be dangerous to me, to my, I don't know, my security or my well-being, something pretty primal. Um, and I didn't want to spend too much time trying to make meaning out of it and to narrate that, but just to notice the feeling itself and then try to feel into what's the right way to respond to that feeling. And of course, you know, the learning is to try to step into it, not recklessly. So hopefully it wasn't too reckless, um, but intentionally. And so, you know, that's a, a bit of a perspective on it. 
Well, that cleared things up. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Dave. That response is him explaining why he shared it. Just before we discuss it, there's one more piece of context where he's giving his, his reasons for why he shared the conversation. So that was his final reason. These are some things he mentioned before. Yeah, he had had a uh, sort of nudging me to engage in conversation for a few months and it not felt right. And then there was a period where it suddenly felt yes. And by the way, it felt yes. And quite likely one that should, or at least could be shared. Um, and so when I finished the conversation, I only reflected for a day because uh, there's a lot of, I guess you might call it energy um, before I decided that it did feel like something that was contained enough that sharing it would be useful. Um, and then I did. So what kinds of considerations, things like, did the tone feel like it was clean enough, i.e. it wouldn't be too confusing or too hmm, strong, maybe too intense. Did I feel like I broke with my own integrity is another big question for me. And I did, I did not feel like that was the case. I felt like I was able to hold my integrity from through the whole thing, which for me is more important than holding, for example, the, uh, you know, sort of precision of my thinking, which is a, a different issue. So he had a lot of feelings, Chris. He felt like he didn't break with his own integrity and he felt a lot of energy from the conversation. I don't feel like I'm getting a clear answer to David Fuller's questions. I find this somewhat infuriating because what he describes here is like he kind of shifts the focus on the ability to have a conversation and then focusing on how it makes him feel to have this kind of discussion with someone. Like he says there, his concern is over whether it would be confusing and what the tone would be to people when sharing. Fundamentally, these are all, they're presented as if they're very deep, but in actual fact, they're quite superficial. If you're able to have an engaging chat with someone, but fundamentally, their goal is to promote a fascist ideology. That's even why you're talking to them, because they are somebody that's pushing a particular ideology. And Jordan mentions in that that the guy was nudging him to interact for a number of months. That alone should be a potential warning sign. He relies on this kind of ineffable sense within himself of when it's reasonable to interact. But again, he's not talking about interacting, having a private conversation with someone. He's talking about recording a discussion and releasing it to an audience and a discussion where you have a poly chat with somebody who's promoting anti-Semitic fascism. Yeah, that's right. It's a real maneuver, isn't it? And I think what I we should be focusing on throughout this in these clips is the language that Jordan uses. And it's almost like he's leveraging that sort of corporate touchy-feely, I'm okay, you're okay, speak, talking about energies and centering yourself and all of these personal reactions when, as you say, that's not the point. David Fuller is, is asking him whether he was being responsible in basically providing a kind of an endorsement, really, for an anti-Semitic fascist. And talking about this stuff is, is a way of avoiding the issue, it seems. Yeah. I think this is the Achilles heel 
of the kind of sense making alternative ecosystem endeavor is that like you say with this use of jargon or pseudo profound psychological mysticism language it makes things sound much more deep and multi-layered when in a lot of cases it feels like a lot of that is being achieved by the use of profound language as opposed to the actual content being deeply challenging to grapple with. We've talked about with the Gwyneth Paltrow content and various other gurus as well, that a lot of it fundamentally comes down to focusing on yourself, right? And how things impact you, not being the primary thing that matters. The conspirituality guides covered this as well. I've got a couple of clips which speak to that part of basically seeing the chance to interact with a a fascist guy as simply being a step on your spiritual journey towards Mm, yeah of growth of personal growth Mm. which (laughs) yeah yeah, which like the issue should be clear but anyway let's listen to it the propositional level the kinds of things that people may or may not present themselves as believing is not the thing i'm interested in what i'm interested in is as you said i'm seeking truth and to seek truth is to present yourself in a what does Johnny V call it? Participatory, right? To actually engage, uh, how do I change? What actually changes in me as a consequence of this encounter? And to what degree is something changed in the other, in the, consequ- in the consequence of the encounter? Um, and if anybody chooses to participate in the encounter, does something change in them? Not what content finds itself landing on the surface of their neocortex, but rather, does anything actually shift or change that is meaningful? And perhaps not, and perhaps so. Um, good faith is a primary question here. You know, that's an important thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, another good example of elevating it immediately to this spiritual journey of self-growth where like two plants, you become entwined with the other and and interact and exchange energies and develop and grow. And you, you have to remind yourself that he's talking to a fascist. We're going to be saying this a lot, but it, like you say, that's the fact that you have to keep grinding in this discussion because it floats away in Jordan's monologues. Yeah, yeah, it does. This didn't strike me so strongly the first time I heard it, but listening back to it, I'm I'm just struck by this, this use of this hippy-dippy spiritual language, which it accomplishes multiple goals. It, a bit like Eric Weinstein, it immediately bumps things up to a level of abstraction where anything is true and you have your own truth and who can say it's all very complicated. It also sidesteps very admirably any kind of criticisms of what you've said or whatever because it was all steps on a journey that you were taking. Those were just... The superficial patterns on the neocortex, yes. right, from the deeper relationship. Yeah. When people usually reserve this kind of language for some deep session that they had with a therapist, not for a friendly conversation that they had with an anti-Semitic fascist. We're going to be saying this a lot. <laughs> I say, I don't think we can possibly say it enough because that's the issue. There's a lot of echoes of Jordan Peterson-esque rhetoric um, in this kind of conversation around relationships and 
the interactions between individuals and so on. And I thought this clip, which follows on quite shortly from the last one we played, is a nice illustration of that. So in my personal experience, um, my ability to interact with him in a fashion where my integrity is intact and something, I learned something like something changes in me that I feel is a growth and evolution. And I imagine, although of course I do not know for sure, the same thing is happening on his side of the conversation, that there's something about the relationship that has a meaningfulness or a reality to it um, is the primary consideration. And I would suggest, by the way, that many of the questions that you are bringing up and that are coming up, um, if taken from that point of view, have a nutritive effect, uh, Zach Stein's ensoulment, you know, rather than a developmental question, it's more of an ensoulment question, I think, for everybody who challenge, you know, chews on them. You know, the people who find his stuff to be um, like attractive and easy. All right, well, let's, let's put that to the test. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I feel at multiple points, David Fuller might have said, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I don't understand a single word of what you just said. Yeah, I think in some sense, this is David's Achilles heel because he is a spiritual guy and he also has similar concerns and interests to Jordan. So Jordan's language to theirs sounds to us like mystical psychobabble. I get that he's referencing real thinkers who have these deep ideas about these distinctions between insolment and so on that he's discussing. But a lot of it feels deflectionary from the point, right? And here's a clip of David talking about mainstream media and gatekeeping. And I think it will highlight why he might be overly sympathetic towards Jordan and these kind of ideologies. I feel a sense of trepidation in this conversation because I know the kind of concerns that I've got, the kind of questions that I'm raising are very easy for me to be seen in a kind of like blue church censoring kind of role in relation to this. And I want to kind of name that. And um, yeah, because I, I feel that what I'm really trying to wrestle with is in this we know that the old gatekeeping doesn't work like this kind of like the blue church strategies of shaming of kind of saying these topics can be talked about. These can't be, but I feel like we're in a new place where we're all gatekeepers in some way. And I'm wondering what are our responsibilities in this, in this space? Yeah, Chris. So just picking up your point there where I think David does have a bit of a, an Achilles heel in the sense, and he's not alone in well, it's been called civility porn, where one, there's a total reluctance to simply discount stuff and to say that isn't worth engaging with. What you're saying doesn't make sense. There's this real tendency to always assume good faith. There's this guy, Jordan Hall, is assuming good faith with the fascist. David Fuller is far less blameworthy, if at all, here, but uh, he's totally assuming good faith in Jordan Hall and just in giving him the benefit of the doubt and not sort of being a bit like a hard-nosed journalist, which he could be, which is to demand a direct answer and to not allow him to get away with this kind of obfuscation and avoiding questions. I think that's because they have an existing relationship and 
he isn't seeing his role exactly here as a hard-nosed journalist, but rather as somebody raising issues in a conversational manner with a, a colleague. And I think you have to factor that in, but this is possibly a recurring critique of people within the alternative media ecosystem that a lot of it does prioritize relationships and friendships and, and like you say, civility over potential harm that people are promoting. Now, I'll highlight here again that David is somebody that has been calling out someone who he regards as a friend in a very direct manner. But I actually think that's another illustration of how it has to be held important that when people are promoting anti-vaccine rhetoric or misinformation about ivermectin or whether they're potentially leading their audiences towards anti-Semitic fascists without due warning. These are concerns that need to be called out in strong terms. My issue is not even in terms of politics or causing harm and needing to call out fascists or whatever. I'm just concerned with the harm that's caused clarity and decent communication, right? So, if I asked you, Chris, what did you do this morning? And you said, well, I felt my energies were intertwined and you gave me all this babble. And if I wanted to know what you were doing this morning, I'd demand you (laughs) answer me plainly. You know, I think there's a failure there. You know, it's the kind of thing we see amongst most of our gurus. We see Russell Brand do it with his effervescent philosophizing and Jordan Peterson and Eric Weinstein. This bumping any tangible, concrete question up to a level of spiritual transcendence, but at which point just words have no meaning anymore. I find that really irritating. And it's got nothing to do with the fact that the politics or censorship or anything like that. It's just a very unclear way to communicate. Well, on that subject, so I just want to drop a concept into your brain sphere, (laughs) Matt. It comes up later in the conversation where they're talking about what can be created by having a relationship with someone. It's metaphysical, it's spiritual, it's a little bit sexy. <laughs> Let me play this clip for you. Part of that is me, part of that is him, part of that is things beyond both of us, right? It's the whole complex, the whole uh, warm data milieu. Um, I may be able to come into something like an integrous relationship with aspects of Brandon, right? Aspects of me can come into integrous relationship with aspects of him. And for the moment, it forms a new being, which is those aspects coming into relationship and exchanging perspectives and possibilities and tensions, and then perhaps coming back into relationship with the complex relationality that is me, right? I've got this mental image of a couple of snails mating where they kind of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You know how snails mate? It's it's not pretty. That's that's the image I had in my head there, Chris. I didn't like it. I have to say, there's an art to metaphors and flowery prose. In actuality, what's being discussed here is having a conversation with someone. They're talking about the metaphysics of discussing someone something. In a way, when you have a discussion, you create a new entity, which is the interrelationship of you making points and the other person making points. And then you each take a part of that conversation back and your soul is transformed. It's just a conversation, (laughs) my friend. Like you just had a conversation with a fascist. A mystical enjoining of spirits. And if you did with a fascist, maybe you should be concerned. (laughs) Like maybe... If, if you're finding yourself spiritually penetrated by an anti-Semitic fascist, there should be a concern there. Get yourself checked. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Get down to the, the metaphysical clinic afterwards and just, just get things checked. That's all we're saying. But the, following shortly after that, if you thought that that was quite Peterson-esque or unnecessarily flowery, how about this one? Those are two sides of the same coin. Then that's a non-starter that can't work wants to move faster than it can move or take on more than it can take, right? Being able to start where it can start and builds in from the interior out from the smallest and say, okay, are we still holding? Are we still holding? Are we still holding? And if it breaks, what happens then? If it breaks, is there a predatory move that actually begins to break the integrity here? Dangerous, not good. If it breaks, is there an unconsciousness that tries to grab more here and do stuff here? Mm, Also not good. And by the way, the arrow goes that way too. Does it, you know, does it parasitize, parasitize or predate the integrity over here? I would say something like that, like something that actually has the capacity to disseminate a viral degradation of individual and collective integrity would be something to be very, very like super careful of, like keep it in, in uh, uh, tight containers. Fuck me, Chris. I mean, come, <laughs> come on. <laughs> I'm glad you brought him to our attention because <laughs> even though he's not, important in any numerical sense he's like a distilled essence of what our gurus do i mean he makes russell brand seem sensible and clear and to the point prosaic he's he's really special like we've seen this in some of the other dare i say second tier or third tier gurus that we've seen we haven't covered them on the podcast yet but we've watched some of their videos they're very loquacious he can talk right it makes no fucking sense but he can babble on for hours, I'm sure of it. And he's got lots of nice words and he strings them together very nicely. But it's like a GPT-3 artificial intelligence algorithm, which produces this utterly meaningless babble. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm just curious. Do you think it makes sense to some people or is it just me? No, I mean, I can, in a Peterson-esque way, I can follow the flow of what he's arguing especially like when taken in the context of the conversation but it it does not negate in any way that he's still talking about the capacity to disseminate a viral degradation of individual collective integrity is something to be very careful of but but chris i'd see your face matt I quoted him. That's a quote. <laughs> I know that's a quote, but you're saying that that makes a certain degree of sense to you. And that's, that, that's, no, that's I mean, what look, I'm having trouble I'm with. I'm saying it's using the maximum amount of words to make completely mundane points. It, it isn't complicated what he's saying. It just sounds complicated. The preceding question, which precipitates those two clips that I just played, a sexy snail conversation clip, and the integrity viral dissemination clip. So this is the question that he's riffing off. What do you think are the, or are there non-negotiable qualities that someone would need to show up with to be, like what what are we screening out with that boundary, I guess? What's the toxin? Um, So... It's interesting because it has to do with the notion of the relationship as being more fundamental. So there is, in fact, nothing that's non-negotiable in the abstract because we're not dealing with 
abstract relationships between individuals. We're dealing with real relationships where the relationship is always going to be now a kind of an admixture, a bit of an alchemy. So the question is actually going to be more like what's going to be non-negotiable is circumstances where the encounter can't in fact achieve integrity in relationship. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to do that to you. I forgot there was a preamble to the two clips that yeah. I played, but like, Dima was trying to ask him, what's the boundaries, right, of the people that we're willing to have conversations with? And this is what you got. <laughs> yeah, I, David is making sense to me. I understand David's questions. He's asking them. In kind of sense-making manner. <laughs> Yes, he's couching them in the very polite, sense-making manner. But what he really wants to say is, is there anyone so bad that you won't talk to them? Yeah. In phrasing the questions or couching them like that, it gives Jordan the opening to just seize upon the abstraction and fly away into <laughs> the distance, <laughs> into the stratosphere. The guru sphere. The guru yeah. sphere, yeah. I will say there are some questions David asked. This is, I think, in part a response to some of those answers by Jordan. What do you say next, right? So he often has to respond if Jordan has taken off into the psycho realm of mysticism. But there are points where he pushes him directly and you do get sort of direct answers. This is one after he asks him about the issues of platforming and promoting somebody who is a proprietarian, this is what Jordan says. It's not my perspective that I was speaking with the proprietarians, right? I was speaking with this gentleman who sometimes is called Brandon Hayes. And by the way, sometimes it's called other things. Um, And it's my experience that no human being could ever, even if they wanted to, be nothing more than a particular um, ideology or organization. Um, And I would imagine if you were to go in and actually have a conversation with, say, five or six people, who spend a lot of time in the domain of proprietarianism and maybe even considered themselves to be proprietarians, you would identify that there were a very, very large number of things over which they had very significant differences and some set of things over which they agreed. Um, And even that's not particularly interesting to me. I play that to say that his argument is like the fact that this guy is a proprietarian is the least interesting aspect of him. And you have to ask, what is interesting you wouldn't be talking to him right if it wasn't for the fact that he's a proprietarian yeah well like he he said before is those sort of details that kind of content is just rain pitter pattering off the surface of his neocortex what he's concerned about is the process of engaging with his energy at a level which is deeper and more meaningful than any of the actual content of his political or philosophical views so yeah what if anything is it about? Also, this kind of deflection to say, I'm dealing with a person, not an ideology, right? I'm speaking with somebody who's an Islamist or somebody who's a communist, but I see them as a person. So that's what I'm interested in, their personality. But nobody is saying to you that that person is not a person. The issue isn't their personhood. The issue and the reason that you're being criticized is because of the ideology that they adhere to. And to act like that's an incidental factor to someone, maybe if their ideology is like jet ski instructor. But when your ideology is like an extreme 
ideology, which is no longer in the 21st century, is very rare and is heavily bigoted and, you know, led to genocide a half a century ago. It behooves you to treat that with the due respect that it deserves, right? And not the softball as this is an incidental factor. And I don't give a flying fuck if five proprietarians disagree with four proprietarians about the appropriate way to deal with Jews. The fact that they all agree that we need to deal with the Jews, that's the problem with the proprietarians, right? And even if one of them wasn't so signed up that the Jews are the issue, maybe he's just a fascist. Oh, well, I still have an issue with him in that case, right? Like the- It's a rich tapestry, Chris. It's a rich tapestry. They're, yeah. they're, not a, they're not a monoculture. Look, that point is obvious. I'm really getting more and more interested in this style of language and these methods of deflection because I'm familiar with it. That's why. It's not like it's it's some new thing. But I haven't heard it coming from these kinds of people. I'm familiar with this language from boomers. Yeah, people my parents' age who lived through the 60s and the 70s and are kind of into spirituality and very progressive and open-minded and all that stuff. And they're nice people, right? They have nothing else in common with proprietarians or anything like that. But my one issue with them is that they do use this kind of language a lot. You only need to go to some sort of like a staff meeting of a very progressive social worker type institution and you'll you'll find long discussions that use this kind of language. And I just find it interesting that it's getting repurposed, you know, in a very different context here. Does that strike you? Like, do you recognize this language, Chris, from like another time? Yes. Although I think it's more reflecting on the kind of Ken Wilbur integrative philosophy kind of stuff. It's a little bit new age type spirituality and self-development, but hybridized with kind of modern politics and culture war content. I think it owes more to that oeuvre than to the boomer self-help or I, I, well, I guess that is boomer self-help, right? Yeah, the- it's from a, yeah, it's from a long time ago. Yeah. And, but no, I agree with you. It is, it's centered with spirituality and I associate it with people that tend to be into that abstracted version of religion. Mm-hmm. Not quite new age. It's a bit, it's not, it's a bit more sophisticated than that, but I've just, I just recognize this kind of language. Um, yeah. There's a segment where the uneasy overlap between the realities of running a YouTube channel and releasing this interview that you've done and the narrative that Jordan wants to put that it's all about the individual relationship. So David puts this point to him. It's more that if you're going to get controversial people on, it's, I think it is part of the responsibility to sense-making to explain why they're controversial. And I know that you're in a very – I understand the dilemma that you're expressing because you start to – it starts to become a sort of much more formal interview if you've got a set of questions. It's like, well, I need to ask him about this. I need to ask him about this. I need to ask him about this. Uh, but I do think that a certain amount of that framing is, is, is necessary to give for, – for the audience to understand who this person is. Again, you're framing as an audience. And if you're doing journalism with an audience, then you're probably right. 
Um, but aren't but aren't you? I mean, it's one thing to have the conversation, but you're choosing to put the conversation out. So you're you're then engaging an audience. You're then in an audience dynamic, whether you want to be or not. Are you not? Mm. Yeah, obviously true. I, I disagree with this that it has to be confrontational or it has to be like an aggressive kind of gotcha style journalism. You could just be direct and you can just talk substantively about the issues at hand in a very clear kind of way. I'm not thinking of a journalistic type interview, but I'm just thinking of of how good academics would have a robust debate with one another. They wouldn't be getting in touch with each other's energies and their feelings and looking to grow as people. They'd be looking to sort this out. Yeah. And like we discussed, you can you there are plenty of examples of people discussing things with fascists where they don't endorse their worldview and they don't allow them to avoid the reasons that they're controversial. But it isn't done in like a hectoring kind of Jeremy Paxman style. It could mm. be done conversationally and you could still make the content of the ideology clear. Yeah. And in Jordan's denial that he's concerned about an audience, well, let's hear him elaborate on that a little bit. I'm sharing my conversation and people can choose whether they want to engage with it. It's not the same thing. I don't have any desire, for example, to grow an audience. Think about how important that is. But once you've got an audience, then your ego is attached to the audience. Right? Um, I have no interest in that at all. Like, perhaps one of the virtues of this particular conversation is that those who relate to me in the, uh, in the orientation towards audience will simply move along. They'll have no interest in me. I find this very guru-esque, right? And uh, along the lines of what Jordan's saying is that he released this because he regards it as an interesting experiment or transformative conversation. He's not releasing it in order to grow an audience, attract an audience. He's just putting it out there and what people take from it, that's their choice. I feel that that is just, maybe he believes that, Maybe that's his internal motivation, but he set up a YouTube channel, which he is sharing content on. And if that were the case, that it's really just about him and the, you don't need to make that available for other people, unless you want some sort of audience, unless you want some sort of engagement with the content, because for what other purpose would you put out an interview that you did with other people, you do want people to engage with it and you do want people to see it because if you don't want people to see it, you just don't put it out. Yeah, well, Chris, this is that caveat emptor philosophy we've heard before, haven't we? For people who want to wash their hands of any kind of responsibility for what they say. And that's that's from Bretton Heather Weinstein, right? They'll say that, look, this is this is just us exploring ideas, thinking things through, but it's not our responsibility what people do with that. Yeah, it's a nice maneuver. It's one we've seen before, but... Yeah, and it, it actually, it puts the blame onto the audience, right? If they approach yeah. your material in the wrong way, that's their fault. You, really, you're better off without them. You know, it does fit with this sort of libertarian type of thinking, which is, you know, this is me doing my thing, you do your thing. You can, if you engage with me or interact with me or whatever, which funnily enough is kind of related to the proprietarian philosophy as well, but it's underlying a lot of the the gurus in this sphere where yeah it's just it's a way of saying that you have absolutely no responsibility you take no responsibility for anything i think i have a clip of the audience being 
chastised if they show up in audience mode to uh, Jordan's content. So audience, no, not interested. To the degree which somebody is showing up to me in an audience mode, I prefer they not. And I would urge them to, to, to learn never to do that, actually. Audience is a bad mode. It's a bad role to take. Collaborator, co-creator, challenger, sure. That's the kind of thing we're trying to build. Um, it's a real shift. It's a hard shift, particularly if you've been trained that way. A community of co-creators. This is, this is the brave new world where <laughs> plunging yeah. bravely into Chris. So how does this work that people who passively receive your content don't exist? It's only people who are hyper-engaged. as And by co-collaborators, I presume you'll be having them on your show to discuss their opinions and whatnot with everyone who consumes the content. Like, it's just, like you say, it feels like it's deflecting responsibility to the fact that you do have an audience. And if you put content out, you have to consider things like editorial choices and who you're choosing to speak to, what you're choosing to say. Yeah, no, things like editorial choices, say promoting misinformation or platforming, none of that lands with, with these people. They, it's, no. They're like, it's like Teflon. It, and it isn't the responsibility of their audience because their audience didn't have the conversation with the anti-Semite. <laughs> <laughs> so so it, it is on Jordan and not on them, especially if he didn't provide the context. Exactly. Okay, let's move on to the next point. Mm, so the next point, Matt, where we're going, it's a little bit darker. We're going to Desperation Town, Population, me and you. If the clips already annoyed you... And they did. <laughs> steal yourself. Like I say, we're going deeper on this crazy train. We may have highlighted once or twice that he's talking to an anti-Semitic fascist. <laughs> yes, that did come up. That did come up. Mm. It has it has featured in our coverage of this. So far, the issue has been that there's an unearned layer of profundity slavered over the top of conversation with such a character. But there's a little bit of a deeper and darker response in some of the stuff that Jordan said, which had me a little bit concerned. And David doesn't pick up on it in the interview. There's a couple of clips that speak to this. I'll build up there. It'll be like, you know, the Scott Adams reveal mm. that he actually wants a totalitarian dictator at the end of it. Mm. Are you saying he's about to say something more substantive and we're not going to like it? Yes, I am saying that. Um, but he's going to say it in the same way that he said everything else. So this might make it hard to discern, but I think it's there. So first of all, this is him setting the foundation for where he goes. This is the first clip to get things started. Let's actually fight over that. Most of these people tend to be bellicose, so fighting is their mode of exploration. The people who want to recoil from it, hmm, interesting. Well, we're going to have to chew on that too, because... This isn't really the kind of thing, this world that we have to build from my perspective, where kind of the, the weak link, heterogeneous, weak tribes of the 21st century can't really hang together. We have to find some way of actually being able to achieve an active peace. And you know, sometimes we're going to have to learn how to delve into things that are uh, not pleasant or easy to do it. Then we may not be ready for it. Mm. Okay. Achieving a bellicose peace. 
getting a bit more robust to this, I don't know, violence that's coming from these sorts of groups. I don't know. What is that what he's saying? I'm trying to figure it out. It sounds like he's saying we need to go to some dark places in order to build the bonds that we will need to come over the weak ass bonds that the 21st century has given us with social media and the alienation and all those kind of things. So there's just this hint of it that we need to do something substantial and there's a need to respond with something serious, but it's not quite clear what that is at this point Mm -hmm. in order to address the modern, unsatisfactory 21st century society that we find ourselves living in. Mm. Yeah, like I don't want to do fine readings and infer things that aren't meant, but when somebody is so nebulous and vague, it makes one a little bit suspicious about what what is it you are actually getting at? Well, let's see if we can get some more clarity from Jordan. So here's where he goes from there. So we best engage with them now while we're relatively safe and try to find out what process might be able to be put in place that can take individuals who may actually be intrinsically moved into places of relative risk, like actually willing willing to talk about violence, like much more interesting to, than somebody who's so cowed by a civilization that they can't actually uh, muster the energy to fight for something. The people who are actually willing to openly talk about violence simultaneously are potentially the most dangerous, but also potentially the most useful to engage with because there are many people who are willing to engage in violence and we aren't going to talk about it. So what do we do? How do we actually learn how to achieve active peace? It's a real challenge. It's not going to be had by avoiding conversations or blocking people online. Um, A much deeper notion of seeking truth, for example. Right. But are the people who are embracing violence the best people to be engaging with? Are are they really – do they have something special to offer? If so, what is it? Are they more admirable than people that are not willing to justify violence for their ideological motives? It sounds to me here that Jordan is presenting that people with passionate views and extremists are fundamentally just the more interesting people than, yeah. than those who might not be willing to endorse extreme ideologies. Well, the rest of us are cowed by civilization, you see, Chris. Yeah, so there's kind of this admiration for anybody who's willing to step outside the box, regardless of the fact that in this case, stepping outside the box is endorsing an extreme far-right worldview that, again, is trying to bring fascism back in the 21st century. What's admirable about that? And the notion that we need to engage with those people, sure, in the sense that we have to be aware and we have to look at what attracts people to those kind of ideologies. But what Jordan seems to be presenting here is not so much that, but rather that these people are the potential, if we can just co-opt them, they'll be these important members of the new civilizations that we want to build. No, maybe not. Maybe they're people that need to be managed because of their tendency to support violence or adopt extreme ideologies, right? Yeah. Like, and yeah. he, he appears to be saying that they have something special, a special energy to offer that us milquetoast, cowed by civilization people could use, a shot in the arm. Yeah. And okay, so there's a part where David talks to him about 
his phenomenological response to dealing with this Brandon Hayes character and essentially saying that he finds him slippery. As we discussed, the Propertarians, part of their goal is to infiltrate groups and take over them. So like th- this would make sense. And there's this point where Jordan has a kind of weird response to why he's not really concerned about how he feels or like his, about his reaction to Brandon, his somatic reaction. So, so listen to this. What role does somatics play in sense making? Because for me, it's like, um, and I, I guess an open question is what sense did you get in your body when you're interacting with Brandon? Because for me, I got a very strong, um, not pleasant sensation. Well, I'm not afraid of him as a person. So at a fundamental level, I'm not afraid of him or even what he represents. If it turns out that, for example, uh, there is an intent on their part to foster some sort of violent conflict and it comes down to my having to kill him, that's just what happens. So my body isn't concerned with that. Mm -hmm. For people's bodies who do have that kind of a concern, I can imagine it might be very challenging. Uh, well, I don't I feel fear. I, I mean, to be honest, I find them. I have no idea what's going on in your body. The question is about yeah, mine. I find, <laughs> I find, yeah, no, I... yeah, yeah. David is protesting that it's not a physical fear that the fear, like, and he basically goes on to say that he finds the whole group best represented by LARPing. I find Jordan's response to be very weird, especially the implication is that anyone that would object to Brandon, that they're fearful of him and him as a dominating figure it would be willing to take him out if it came down to a mad max style future he would have the ability and his body knows that so he doesn't fear him and Mm. (laughs) you know (laughs) it's it's like jordan peterson saying he's fundamentally aware that he can punch men when he disagrees with them it's just it a lot of it strikes me as like how many times have these people punched people over disagreement or had to kill someone who is trying to instill their like fascist, right? You know, they're talk- they go on to talk about LARPing, but it's, it feels to me that that response is LARPing itself. Totally, totally LARPing. Yeah. No, I agree. I've, I've heard that before amongst a certain kind of male online person and yeah i don't think i have any freaking idea what they're talking about and it's it's quite it's just stupid posturing isn't it to say i I don't have any fear and he's also galaxy brained enough to be able to encompass the kind of challenge that a neo-nazi would present to him psychically without it being bothered by it at all in if he has to kill him he has to kill him but you know He's cool either way. It's just, it's like six to 15 year old boy stuff and not a very mature 15 year old boy either. Yeah. I think part of the reason that so many of these clips have a kind of weird energy to them, right? To speak in the terms that are used in this discussion. Again, there's this sort of use of therapeutic language, like focusing on how did you somatically react to this person? I don't hear that that is a part of the discussion because it it does seem gut feelings are important, but it's the level of abstraction 
that it allows Jordan to go to is quite high. And that seems an issue to me. But we do get more of how this all fits into the worldview that, that Jordan has. And again, it's not good. So here's a clip which speaks to his kind of position on the modern society. I've not met anyone who isn't disconnected in truly meaningful ways. So the inquiry is something like, okay, where is the lack of wholesomeness? Where precisely can we find it? What does that show up as? Can I feel it in myself? Like, obviously, if something in you is uneasy, then either you're feeling something in yourself that is like, oh, oh, and I don't want to go there. (laughs) Or it's, oh, there's a threat, right? That's pretty much it. That's the only way it can be uneasy. There's either a threat or there's a threat. There's a threat from the outside or a threat from the inside. That's what uneasiness means. Um, And I don't feel particularly uneasy when I'm interacting with him. Mm. Mm, yeah. So you're right. It is that therapeutic language and it harkens back to that stuff at the beginning that we talked about, which is that there's this real focus on the sort of personal reactions and personal feelings about the conversation as a, a kind of spiritual practice that one engages with collaboratively rather than any actual content of what you're talking about. I mean, I get very suspicious when I hear this kind of language. When someone is being this abstract and this obscure and using so many buzzwords, they're either an idiot and they don't know what they're talking about and they're blathering in order to just fill the space and sound like they're talking about something or they're using it as a means to avoid giving a direct answer like he was particularly at the beginning or maybe they're running cover and and obfuscating for what is at base. I mean, you were saying he's actually making a very simple point, but sometimes they use that language to conceal the fact that they're making an ugly point. The ugly point here is that he thinks this guy is fine and quite likes aspects of his ideology. That's just my suspicions, but I'm suspicious when people talk like this. The part that stood out to me was the presentation of all people around him are disconnected humans. It's just a a variation on seeing people as the sheeple or the cogs in the machine. And again, looking for the people who stand out from that in whatever way that they're dissatisfied with the system and this creates a specialness to them. It's a very appealing narrative to give to your audience. And like I promised, it goes further. So we get that concept introduced there about the disconnected people and how Danny kind of reiterated that he doesn't feel a threat from interacting with Brandon. He's willing to look into these dark places, just like a Brett Weinstein, just just like so many of them, or Jordan Peterson present themselves. But let's again see where these kind of thoughts take us in the grander narrative. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, his is different. And by the way, let me just put in a quickly jump out to a big frame. As far as I can tell, with maybe minuscule uh, exceptions, uh, we're all suffering from a 50,000 year catastrophe, which has uh, dragged our souls across the pavement of civilization. Uh, I've not met anyone who isn't uh, disconnected in truly meaningful ways. So the inquiry is something like, okay, where is the lack of wholesomeness? Where precisely can we find it? 
What does that show up as? Can I feel it in myself? Like, obviously, if something in you is uneasy, then either you're feeling something in yourself that is like, oh, oh and I don't want to go there. <laughs> or it's, oh, there's a threat, right? That's pretty much it. That's the only way it can be uneasy. There's either a threat or there's a threat. There's a threat from the outside or a threat from the inside. That's what uneasiness means. Um, and I don't feel particularly uneasy when I'm interacting with him. I have concern with the pace. Like, he feel, it feels to me like he wants to go too fast. He wants to move to certain things too quickly. Concerned with the certainty, for sure. Mm. So, you know, there were a lot of similar themes. But again, it's this language about souls being scraped over the pavement of civilization for 50,000 years. And his concern with Brandon, he frames it that it isn't really what he's saying or what he represents, but things like the pace that he wants to go. So, like, is that the pace of the conversation? Is that the pace of his project for society but my concern with uh, an anti-semitic fascist plan for society is not the pace that they want to go it's the the overall goal and the logic that got them to there well yeah maybe he just means that the fascist was just laying on the ideas so thick and fast it was like too much for him to process so quickly but yeah you can't help but wonder if <laughs> Like what he's referring to, what are these certain things that he wants to accelerate towards too quickly that is slightly disturbing? That's the problem with this level of, of abstraction in that you just leave all of these blanks for people to fill in. And a 50,000-year catastrophe dragging our souls across the pavement, I mean, that kind of spiritual mumbo-jumbo is just crazy. And it does I – mean, what he's saying – does remind me of weird ass sort of power type philosophies like Nietzschean type philosophies, which is kind of ultra romantic in the sense of going back to a kind of primitive kind of power sort of level that society has kind of weakened us by reducing our natural energies. It's the whole thing's a bit creepy to me to the extent that it makes any kind of sense whatsoever. Here's the money shot, Matt. So here's the final part of this rant, which deals with the issue of him speaking to a woman, an unnamed woman, who found value in the conversation. And here's one of the points that she picks out, and it sends Jordan off on an elaborative rant about anger and its value. So let's see what's in there. Well, I mean, one, of course, is anger. Anger. He's an angry man, very fucking angry, super angry, like insanely angry, as angry as people ought to be, as angry as I am. He is absolutely livid and unwilling to kill himself, I think is a key thing here. Think about that. Right? We're in a situation where the reality is, really for most people, you're either going to kill yourself or you're going to fight. And we're not in a situation where um, simply not doing has any future to it. And if, if you go along with the civilization structures that we've inherited, you're imbibing toxicity through every pore. Your soul will be stripped mined to nothingness and everything that you love and care for will be decimated. Right? That's, that's what's up. That's what we're facing. That's what we're in. Every food you eat will be some sort of horrible monstrosity of toxicity and genetic manipulation. Every medium that you absorb will be hyper manipulative and uh, super salient. And right? that's, that's what the kind of passive base case is. And if you, and you know it, everybody knows it. There's no way to avoid it. Your body feels it. But what do you do? You shut yourself down, put your head down, you slump your shoulders. Take a look at Gen Z. 
Watch, look at their bodies. They're all like this. They're all slumped like this. So what do you think, Matt? I think that was pretty fucking dark, Chris. You know, underneath that level of abstraction is something reasonably dark. He's continually making excuses for this guy. He's saying he's angry, yeah, but he's just as angry as he ought to be. And mm. that you're in a situation where you have to kill yourself or you have to fight. So, which is again saying, okay, yeah, so actual violence is, is clearly justified, right? And likewise, not doing anything is just not an option. You have to act. Again, referencing that kind of noble, savage idea where the rest of us are like these drone NPC sheeple that have been fed this palaver by by the mainstream media and society and that you have to wake up, open your eyes and grasp hold of the will to power or some shit like that. I, <laughs> like, I just don't like it. I don't like it at all. No, your reaction is, I think, justified because that comes at the end of the interview and it helps contextualize a lot of the previous obfuscating comments. It sounds like he's an angry dude. He sees modern society as fundamentally soul-destroying and the people around him as kind of NPCs, right? That's that's what it sounds like he's saying. And that as a result, he has a sympathy for the anger that Brandon feels at society and so on. But like he, what he hasn't grappled with properly in all of his soul-searching seems to be that essentially you're expressing sympathy for fascistic tendencies. Yes, it's wrapped up with this kind of self-improvement, introspective jargon, but your vision of society is dark. You're offering apologetics for somebody like Brandon, who the whole point of the conversation comes back into focus, which is maybe it wasn't just a self-indulgent conversation. Maybe the reason that you're ending up having this conversation is because of some greater degree of sympathy than a normal person ought have with somebody with that ideology. And you haven't properly grappled with it. Well, yeah, that's right. I think that there's a greater degree of sympathy there than he's letting on. That's the bit that's kind of annoying too, right? Which is that all of that obfuscatory talk is a way of supporting it, excusing it, and agreeing with it without putting your cards on the table. And I haven't followed these right-wing characters anywhere near as closely as some. I know enough to know that they do have this tendency to cloak the ugliest aspects to it, like the really hardcore red pill stuff in these sort of like onion layer skins. The first one's very palatable and and like speaks to feelings of alienation and just not not feeling so great about everything and and that and, and then you gradually level by level you work your way into the full blown I'm generally a little bit suspicious of the whole gateway to the alt right. You know, that that stuff. I I tend to raise my eyebrow a bit about that. I think it's overused. But I think someone like this, both of them, both the both the guy that's in the interview and the guy he was talking to, are at different levels of that pathway. Am I being overly suspicious here, Chris? I don't know Jordan's content enough to say whether we're being unfair overall to his project. It might just be that he has unexamined sympathies. He's so focused on the spiritual journey that he's ignoring 
the ideological affinities that it's it's pulling him into. To counter that, I will say that there were a couple of interactions with David in the interview, and I know they're friends, right? I know they have a relationship. But as David mentioned earlier in the interview, Jordan is the person who comes across as more a traditional guru. He's got a good speaking voice. He is, sounds authoritative, deeply read. He can he ramble off quite passionate, eloquent metaphors and descriptions. So first of all, this is him describing his experience with David raising this issue with him. So here's how he frames that. In fact, even just the fact that we're having this conversation, I think is, is positive evidence. As I said in our Voxers back and forth, um, I actually felt a bit of a provocation in the way in the way that you were interacting. And I thought that was good, a good provocation, um, which maybe was even part of the event. Just to note, if you're saying to someone that you find their way of messaging you provocative, there's an implication there that, that you had an emotional reaction and that you may have found it unduly competitive or something like that. And there's another part where he's talking about his approach to the the interview again. The context here to keep in mind is that David has a background as a journalist and often emphasizes the importance and the extent of like journalistic approaches to things. But so listen to this. I'm, I'm not a journalist, nor do I care to be, nor do I, by the way, esteem the function. <laughs> um, and I don't do interviews, nor do I care to. Uh, so it's not my thing. So if you're looking for that and you're coming to the sorts of things that I do, you'll probably be um, disappointed. Uh, and I Are you searching mostly, for truth? Am I searching for truth? Hmm. This is a very interesting question. I would say more like seeking. And it's interesting just to notice like the difference in the qualities between those two. It's like the difference between a puzzle and a mystery. Hmm. A journalist has a puzzle orientation towards truth. There is a truth. There is a set of facts that can be pinned down in a scientific methodology. Very Francis Bacon. We'll torture her until she tells us the truth, that kind of a vibe. Um, whereas this is more in the notion of a mystery, the sense that there is a, uh, a caring and a carefulness that unveils something that is more in the direction of a embodied livingness. The point I wanted to highlight with that clip was the initial disparaging of journalistic approaches. There's a way where that's valid where, you know, like maybe we would say, look, we're not journalists. When we do interview with people, we're just going to have a conversation in one level, just what Jordan is saying there. But another level, it's saying, nor do I esteem that function, a disparaging shot at journalists and their petty concerns with things like uncovering the truth, where he's more interested in these deeper relationships and encounters that one might have. And this endless parsing of what's the distinction between seeking truth and searching for truth? And isn't that a fundamental distinction? Isn't that the more interesting thing? I can't help but think, no, it's no. not. It's, it's just more interesting to you. And you think there's a, it gives you a chance to wax poetic about how you're a deeper seeker than a, a mere journalist. But yeah. Yeah, exactly. He cares what he's saying because he's not saying anything. It's wordplay and, like you say, an opportunity to wax lyrical about what a transcendent character that you are 
in looking for these deep transformative experiences that are operating on a level below the petty mundane of of people like journalists. It is just such bollocks. <laughs> it's like reading the worst student essay that I ever read. And it's like 6,000 words and I get to the end of it and I, I feel upset. I, I don't like the world. Need to, you know, <laughs> I need to go for a long walk and take some long breaths and listen to some of these gurus has the same impact on me. It's, I find it so irritating how seriously they take themselves and how that contrasts with how little I've got to say. They are good, as you say, uh, very guru-esque in being good with words. Yeah, very much a smooth talker, nice timbre, very eloquent and and fluid in his speaking. And that's the point. It's a performance. It's a performance in wordplay. You know, what on earth was he saying then, apart from the fact that I'm in touch with deep mysteries? Unlike you. Unlike me. Unlike you. Unlike David. No, I am, but I'm, I'm saying unlike me because I think that stuff is <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> People can judge if this is me reading too much into things, but this is how the conversation basically being, gets brought to a close. I mean, there's an, another interesting. By the way, I think we maybe run, have run out of time. I've got a call more or less now. So let's wrap it up. Okay. Um, All right. Not. That happens. You're on the Skype call or whatever. Somebody has to take a meeting and they've got to be rude and, and bump in. But the difference, I, I don't know. I, I just had a feeling, right? Uh, you know, we've been in that situation together talking and one of us has to go. I've never took that tone with somebody no. that I regard as a cool collaborator or whatever you want to take it, right? I would say something like, oh, I'm really sorry. Like I said, I got to take the next call. I'm sorry. We can pick it up another time, but. But here it's like, okay, sorry, no, David, we're, we're going to end this now. Well, Chris, you see, this is how someone who's not a beta cuck ends their conversations. This is what I'm fessing up to. Like, I'm, I'm more apologetic. And, uh, but uh, yeah, the, that's the sense I got that this is how an alpha dog is supposed to end the conversation, right? You don't ask permission. You don't apologize. You just say, this is it. I've, you know, <laughs> we're, done. We're, we're done. We're done. We're done here. here. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've had the conversation. We've done the mystic relationship encounter, sense making ritual. It's over. It's finished, David. <laughs> uh, I'm off yeah. to my next sense making relationship. You'll just have to ponder this mystical union on your own. That's right. I've sucked all the goodness out of this conversation that I'm going to get. I'm not going to grow anymore with any by talking to you. I'm off to grow with someone else. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, look, we may be reading too much into it, but I do agree with you. I don't, that's not generally how one ends conversations in a hurry. Yeah. I think we've covered most of the things. Before we turn to something nice, one other thing that I'll just mention in passing this the people referenced in this conversation, again, primarily by Jordan, are he discusses like Ruben and his reaction to audiences and the Weinsteins. And so on. And it just speaks to the ecosystem. And I, I think David is aware of this and he's been taking various steps to, he's been critical of the intellectual dark web and the insular nature of it. I think that it's telling when there's people's references or James Lindsay and Dave Rubin or Mike Cernovich and, and so on. There's a, there's a certain flavor 
to the the references that come to mind. And if you were so perceptive as Jordan presents himself as being, you think you might note that the ecosystems that you exist within and and who your mind goes to when you want to draw examples. Mm. It's just it's a minor point, but I just want to note it because it's so these people always end up cross over with each other in the coming weeks every time we cover them. Yeah. Jordan did get already get a shout out from Eric Weinstein when he was doing his drop of all the people that you should follow. So yeah. Yeah, of course he did. He he seems like someone who Eric would like. Yeah, his main criticism of Ruben was that Ruben is too beholden to his audience. In contrast to himself, of course, who doesn't care what other people think. Because mm. Yeah, I think the excerpts you played there were pretty representative of the conversation to me. If it felt like <sighs> abstract, insubstantial fluff with dark, creepy overtones, then yeah, I think you've got a pretty <laughs> good flavor of, of what it was like. But, you know, he was worth covering even though just in terms of his audience reach, he's, he's insignificant. Yeah, he is interesting for me because I've, I've heard other characters who are not, you know, they're not on the level of Jordan Peterson or, or someone like that, but they don't have books or anything, but they've got lots of YouTube videos and they seem to do this kind of free association spiel, which, yeah, it's a thing. It's a bit of a trend. Uh, well, yeah, for me, the reason this is interesting to cover is in part because of the nature of the conversation, right? It's a very, pretty serious issue that they're dealing with. I, uh, as I've repeatedly said, I think David has good instincts and in, as uh, on this. He wrote a long article uh, that's attached to it on Medium about yeah. this issue, and it details the proprietarian movement and and it very clearly spells out David's critical perspective on it. He's direct about it, and it's a substantial article. So I think his my feeling is that I'm almost entirely in agreement with David on the objections that he has. But this conversation was interesting to me because when contrasted with the written article, this feels to me much more indulgent of Jordan's defense of the conversation and that might be just the nature of having a conversation with someone versus a written critique but i think it highlights some of the flaws in this kind of alternative sense making framework yeah that it didn't allows for this kind of obfuscation and is somewhat pandering towards it well when one values civility and good faith when those are really high on your list of priorities, then those are good things. But a vulnerability of that is it's very easy to take advantage of it. If you ask me a question that I don't want to give you a straight answer to and I just obscure and prevaricate and bullshit, then if you're going to assume good faith on my part and you're going to exercise impeccable civility, then you're going to let me get away with it because mm. you you have to. So, so yeah, I kind of apologize to to him a little bit he got swept up a, a bit in my general <laughs> disdain for the other guy but you're right i did read that article and it, it was more pointed pulled fewer punches than the conversation itself yeah that's worth noting for people who are wanting to sense make in podcasts yeah we may given the existing relationship with david we may end up having him on as the first guru to offer or the first person covered on a guru episode that mm. wants to offer a response so let's see if he does or not 
But in any case, let's try to end on a positive note. So this no. might <laughs> no, you got nothing to say. Well, I gotta try because there's. I can't admire that the ends that it's being put to, but this consistent fluency with metaphor and poetic description that the guru set have it continues to be a source of wonder for me and i've got one more clip matt that i think it just highlights that jordan is kind of top tier in this ability Mm. to weave poetic narratives around the points that he wants to make so listen to this there was a a thing that had a vital essence to it that eventually showed up as gatekeeper and probably many other things. Curator is probably a subset or a sub species of the same uh, higher order thing. Many of which became corrupt, of course, and became exploited and gamed and whatnot as they tend to. The inquiry of, okay, what is this new thing? What's the, how do we go back up into the most vital center and then come back down? Can't be gatekeeping. That implies things like gates. And of course, gates are around territories. And territories tend to be civilization, you know, cities, castles, protected things. But boundaries, hmm, different idea. Right? A boundary is a different idea than a gate. A gate has a strong enclosure that has only one specific opening, very narrow, very well guarded. And then there's some very simple process that allows things to come and go. Right? A cell membrane is very different. Maybe that's a better metaphor. What does it mean to actually build a boundary, a membrane that has the ability to selectively bring in the resources that are necessary and appropriate for the vital health of the interior while keeping the toxic components out and recognizing that we are no longer individuals? Beautiful. (laughs) I see the listeners can't see it, but I I saw Matt's soul slowly creep from his body during that clip, but I love that there's a pontification on the nature of gates and gatekeepers <laughs> and what they're protecting. Moving on to the discussions of territories and I can't remember what the other thing is, but then he just decides maybe maybe a cell membrane, maybe that's a better one and like starts to discuss the, the ways that we could build that metaphor. That's guru poetry. Yeah, you're right. I have to, 10 out of 10, that's full, full marks for guru allegory and metaphor yeah as i was listening to that i was slowly headbutting my microphone and before when you talked about the fifty thousand year catastrophe that's dragged our souls across the pavement i think i'd live that in the space of 20 30 seconds my kids have one entrance and exit you've never thought about that have you and how that relates to the concept of a gatekeeper so yeah and they're often made of wood i'd add just yeah, like that. and wood yeah. comes from trees, and trees yeah. are old, Matt, and the roots are deep. Yeah, you know? the root. Oh my god! Like, but <laughs> yeah. You've. I mean, jokes aside, you have hit on something, isn't it? Which is that the wordplay. Yeah, like mm. you know, like what's in a word, and what's the difference between a membrane and a gate, and what's the best metaphor for what we should be doing, and what does a gate really do? Well, they're just fucking words, you know. Like <laughs> you've just taken, <laughs> you take it. Yeah. like Isn't that the thing, Matt? That's what exercises them. That's what makes them come alive. This ground level superficial concerns about anti-Semitism or fascists or whatever, who cares about those mundane things? Let's stick in this airy-fairy world of concepts and, and yeah. what is the exact terminology that matters. What's the difference between 
a git and a membrane. Yeah, that's where the sense making happens. That's the sweet stuff. Yeah. And yeah, so like this is Jordan Peterson too. Jordan Peterson is mm. never happier when he's talking about the, the key distinction between a gate and a membrane. Like, <laughs> like, like that's, <laughs> yeah, so this guy is like Eric Weinstein and Jordan Peterson had a bastard love child and he's <laughs> run, now running rampant on YouTube. But uh, certainly in terms of the that sort of abstraction and obfuscation He's he's right up there with with Eric and with that that love of wordplay and ale- poetic allegory and those deep ineffable truths. He's he's Trey Trey Jordan Peterson. So an interesting character, but I can't say that I. Well, that's, I I think that counts as your positive thing. I love he's a love child of Eric Weinstein and Jordan Peterson. That's a compliment in his realm. So there yeah. you go. You, there you go. You, we, we we drew it out of you with our final clip for today Mm. so there we go matt that's the this conversation and jordan hall i think fully decoded would you say we've done our portion our allocation of sense making for the day we can be proud give ourselves a pat (laughs) on the back (laughs) yes yes and speaking of pats on the back matt it's come to our favorite segment the feedback review segment. <laughs> I I do love this segment. I increasingly look forward to it. Yeah, well, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna re- say that in my tendency to highlight negative reviews, I feel like I'm I'm creating an incentive which is <laughs> damaging to our brand. So just it exists <laughs> because the the people who write positive reviews tend to not get as much focus and i i am going to do that again because we've got quite a in-depth negative review on itunes so so let me get started it's by poulain mm-hmm. the, the french word and the title is cringeworthy one star it's not mm. a not not a promising start but no while i can't justify more than a single star here i'm glad i found the podcast It wouldn't feel out of place as a footnote in an introductory course on rhetoric and is legitimately hilarious. This doesn't sound like a one-star review. Yeah, I mean, come on, like legitimately hilarious. We should at least get two stars for that. Well, wait till you find out what's funny, though. The theoretical premise of the show entails debunking and dunking on various gurus, but in practice, it ends up being more of a rambling duck test for partisan dishonesty, which is driven by the overt political bias coloring every point the hosts make. Okay. okay. That would mean that our pointing out about the metaphorical language that Jordan Peterson uses, or in this episode in particular, our concern with fascists and <laughs> anti-Semites is, is, is driven is by just our- <laughs> rank partisan <laughs> dislike of the the far right. How this is what it's all about, Matt. It's just a political project for us. Yeah. I don't mind being thought of as a partisan against anti-Semite fascists, you know. I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't I'm, think that's what he's drawing as, but I agree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. uh, I'm fine with that. This review is going to take a guru turn. For the Sinisfets out there, imagine a deep shade of snark 
mixed with whatever color the blue-black shadow of the hill these guys insist on dying is, sure to cast over their reputations as serious people down the line. Well, wow, that's 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 a lot to take in. So, so for the synesthetes, so he's yeah. He, th- this is a criticism that's <laughs> making <laughs> use of color <laughs> as, a, as a device. Yeah, it's, it's a metaphor wrapped in a enigma, buried in a <laughs> membrane puzzle. <laughs> a deep shade of snark mixed with the blue black shadow of the hill that we are insisting on dying on. I don't know. It marks for poetic creativity anyway. Yeah, but, but he didn't, doesn't say what color snark is. We have to imagine it. Um, what That's do you imagine? That's because you're I'm imagining kind of like a mustard yellow. And that, yeah, an emotion is... No, I think snark is more like a kind of a purpley blue. So... Well, that's wrong, but nice try. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I I admire that he thinks that we are serious people who have reputations to be concerned with uh, or will have down the line. See, that's it. He he accidentally... Yeah, praising us. Little does he know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've already peaked. If the askewed and knowingly uninformed hot takes that litter the podcast are the circle jerk, then the near Herculean efforts these two exert trying to shore up one another's commitments to uncharitably is the reach around. What? So, <laughs> right, so <laughs> it, it, the new metaphor, he's jumped off the, like from the, you know, the, the pur- blue purple hill of snark or whatever it is. And now he's going for sexual. We're in some deep, pornography where there's a circle jerk and then it's followed up by a reach around these these are sexual maneuvers Matt, or, or sexual scenarios i guess oh i'm not i'm not even 100 sure what a reach around actually involves but i but don't don't tell me can I, you imagine do you want me to <laughs> yeah. is it like I when just, you it's like when you're giving somebody a hug and you pat them on the back something a like very that. special kind of hug matt <laughs> that is uh, you know when two people love each other very much <laughs> they, they might give them each other a special kind of hug where one reaches around to a certain zone and tugs on something so that's oh. that's the the thing that you want to imagine here i All love right. that this is how he's chosen to metaphorically represent our conversations forget about snails banging each other this is mm. just it's direct <laughs> this this is what a conversation in yeah. um the hosts gleefully pat each other on the rhetorical back as they ramble on about their the disingenuous and sloppy thinking they constantly accuse their subjects of as if they aren't about to commit those very crimes against clear thinking in the same sentence and just to be clear in brackets which they are pretty often Right. Hey, listen. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna give some credit here because there's one. There's one bit about this which is right. What's that? We do tend to agree with each other quite a bit. We're kind of on the same page a fair bit, aren't we? We don't have that kind of debate kind of. Yeah, because Matt. But the reason for that is because we're sensible humans. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) we're just fucking right. Look, there's only a couple of way different ways that you can say fascists are wrong. Like, and uh, you know, look, I'm not saying all the people that we cover in fascists. I'm just, you know, there was a fascist in this episode, so it's on my mind. But yeah, sure, we are ideologically aligned. We've already acknowledged that, but I just, the issue I take with this is more that it's from the God Sad School explain, right? You, 
you mentioned it's a rhetorical back. Like, don't even have the confidence to make the audience aware that you, you when you say back, you don't mean physical back. It's a, it's a rhetorical back. And then just to highlight when he's saying, as if we aren't going to make those same errors. And then just to make sure that people get it. And in brackets, and I'm saying they do make those errors. <laughs> yeah, right? it's, like, it's very much you, the, <laughs> the inside school. Of, he's over explaining the criticisms. Yeah, like I was hoping for some some really nasty but precise and smartly presented dicks. But yeah, he's trying too hard, or, or she, I'm not sure, have has not. It's 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 too god sad. Sorry, man. This this review. It's not finished, I, Matt. It's got a sting in the tail. Well, it's shaping up for a one star. I'm going to review his review and I'm going to give it like... One star. Cringeworthy. Don't explain your jokes. <laughs> um, <laughs> listen to this thing. It's a sad, afactual and hilarious peek into the minds of the soaking Twitterati that vibrates to the IDW. Uh, I did like that metaphor, but the Twitterati vibrating to the IDW. That's just pretty good. I'm vibrating as you speak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. So that's where hilarity comes from. It's not our doing. It's how you you listen to this podcast and you laugh. You you laugh at the horror that is our lives. That's that's where the joke comes. So well, look, I'm I'm going to give it an extra star for the quivering, sh- shaking, vibrating to the Twitter ad. Vi- vibrating, vibrating. That's like, that's an ex- because I'm charitable and I'm even handed. See, that's why I'm giving. I'm, I'm bigger than this person, so I'm going to give that review two stars. Well, yeah, that is very big of you. I, <laughs> I, I'll give it two as well, just simply to agree with you. Yes, that's how we do things. And last, to, to wash the pulling taste out of our mouth, there's a review that's by Luna the Swiss Cheese Button Vegan. Better name. Uh, very, name. very, really good. Five stars. This is more like it. Ah. You, you never knew how many gurus are out there. But you sure as hell know after listening to this podcast. The hosts are very funny. The Reddit thread smells like testosterone, but is entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, what you know what Reddit thread they mean. Maybe our subreddit smells like testosterone. I, I think somebody did a poll and it was seventy percent male, so that might, might be explaining yeah. that. But we can't. I agree. We, we have no control over the membership of the subreddit. So I'm not sure we could be blamed. I individually approve everyone that applies, but Matt has no control. But um, uh, yeah, just, and I just, like the, in- just like the rest of the podcast thing. <laughs> yeah, I keep the ratio seventy percent men. That's that's the ratio I like, Matt. You know, that's just a- that's, that's <laughs> keep things testosterone enough. Yes, different opinions are available on the the podcast, and I don't begrudge pulling his negative review. I just. I take issue with some of his metaphorical language. That's all. We derive a certain amount of pleasure by hate listening to stuff that we don't like. And far, far be it from me to begrudge it uh, from someone else to do the same to us. So all the best to you, Pauline. Yeah. Have a reach around on us. I'll jerk <laughs> you off when I see you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look, Matt, there's, there's an air of defensiveness when you get criticism. So that's right. There's, there's always some truth, you know, buried down in the, the digs that people make. And I'm, I think it's perfectly valid to cop to that. But I, I will say, like, one thing that never lands with me is this point about, oh, aren't they just doing what the gurus do? Like, if you can't tell the fucking difference between my, me and Eric Weinstein, 
your judgment is worth shit. I'm not claiming I have, I deserve a Nobel Prize or the people in my family. I'm, I'm, I don't speak in these dense metaphors about alchemical lemons. There are things, and it's the part of the reason that the people that we look at are much more famous and much more influential than we are. There's plenty of things that you can criticize me in particular, but us for. The one that we are... We're just the same as the gurus. No, we're, we're not. You're wrong. Again, no other options available. Mm. <laughs> You're just wrong. Yeah. I mean, the other aspect of the common criticism is that we're ideologically fixated. Now, this is a common thing, right? That pretty much everybody accuses everybody <laughs> of being ideologically sure. fixated because it does appear like that, doesn't it? Like whenever somebody says something, you don't like or don't agree with it definitely feels that they've yeah that they've got these blind spots and this tunnel vision going on and even if you don't quite like them and think that they're reasonably good otherwise that's a very natural instinct so but you know some people really are ideologically fixated and some yeah. people less so but um you know how, how does anyone ever tell it seems like a unsolvable mystery well, to me I think the distinction here is that I don't in any way think that my ideological perspective doesn't influence the things that I focus on, or it doesn't tinge how I interpret things. It does. There's a reason that we focus on or, or have o focused more on figures within the IDW sphere, right? Because that's where my particular focus lies. And I know that material better than in other cases. But the distinction, I think, which is important to draw is like you said, that there's degrees to which that you indulge in bias and that you perceive yourself as to have transcended it or, or not. And yeah. there are steps that you can take to try to reduce it. And in no way are we perfect in removing our bias or not letting our politics influence how we assess things. But, but that's the point. We don't claim to be that. We, we do take consideration of it. We do heed feedback that we receive. But in some cases, it, it is that, that basically people want us to shit on someone that they don't like. And if it is the case that the material we cover isn't that bad, then I'm sorry, but that's the way the material was. And, yeah. and maybe the person actually is terrible, but like yeah. in the material we covered, they were not that bad. Well, look, a, a couple of things. First of all, like you said, there's always going to be this kind of, for want of a better word, ideological assumptions that underlie things. Like, for instance, in this episode, our assumption is that anti-Semitic fascism is bad. Mm. It's a bad thing. Yeah. We didn't we didn't justify that. We didn't explain it. We didn't make any arguments to sort of support that view. We just take it as a given, right? Because yeah, and you know, that's fair enough, right? You have to take a whole bunch of things as givens usually whenever you talk about anything, really, because you mm -hmm. you can't go down all these sidetracks to sort of justify everything on first principles. That would be insane. So the best you could do is just just put them up front, you know, and I think it's pretty obvious what we do there. I mean, for my part. <laughs> in terms of my natural tendencies and and preferences, I like clear expression. I like people <laughs> being concrete and direct. And and I acknowledge that I'm that I have a stronger preference for that than the average person. I was joking the other day. I was remembering 
a time in high school when we were given like a poem to analyze and and the poem was about these two farmers who would who would meet every season or something like that to repair the the wall that adjoined their two farms right and then they'd go again and then they'd meet again the next season you know very beautiful poem apparently it was an allegory for the the barriers we build between each other and and how we keep each other at arm's length and I just thought it was a poem about two farmers fixing a fence right? <laughs> so I I recognize that I'm not a poetic soul and uh that's that's all right that's a limitation of you Matt unlike me who's deeply poetic in all aspects of my life but I <laughs> I'll also the last thing I'll say about it is that in this episode in particular, it's easy for us to say, you know, what right-thinking person wouldn't agree with us that anti-Semitic fascists are a problem? Like, this is an easy episode. There's harder episodes where they're having lean towards left-wing liberal perspectives mean that we might go easier on somebody who's offering liberal takes on things and harder on somebody that's offering center-right sure. takes, right? And, and mm-hmm. that's true. But fundamentally... I basically am saying that with us, as with all content that you consume, you factor in where the people lie. Like I I consume the fifth column content. Mm. I find things which they say annoying because I'm not an American libertarian, but I I factor in where they're coming from, right? And their guests are often not in the same, the exact same political niche or there's other content that I consume where the people, the hosts are more progressive and that's sometimes annoying to me as well. And in all cases, I just factor in, okay, so this is where they're coming from and I don't have to agree with it, right? And and that's fine for me. And I feel that people can do the same with us. For some people, we're going to be too milk toast. For some people, we're going to be too liberal. You just count that in when we're talking about things. It's not a requirement that you agree with all our takes to listen. No. No, and I don't think our takes rely so much on the agreeing with all those assumptions. Like you could, no. you could conceivably be sympathetic <laughs> to fascism, right, and still agree that the guy that we covered in this episode is too wishy washy. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not not hardcore enough. Yeah, no, but you know what I mean. Still, like in terms of the way he expressed himself, was extremely obscure. Why not? Yeah. Why not call a spade a spade? Likewise for Jordan Peterson, you know, you could be centre-right, you could be religious, you could have have the same issues with, hang on, this is a non-secretor, hang on, you're using an analogy to, using it as a jumping off point to make a whole bunch of assertions that are only justified by a chance association of words. That's critical thinking. Everyone can benefit from that. Here, here. Okay. With that... Let's turn to our wonderful patrons who support the podcast and receive benefits such as the Gurometer extra episode where we break down the scoring of the gurus um, that we cover and also will be receiving advertising-free versions of the podcast since we now have some advertiser content. If that ever happens, if that if that's a situation which continues, we'll we'll see. You will have ad free versions, and there's all the various waffly things and content that we put up on the Patreon. So to thank a couple of the people who have taken that dive, um, the first three that I want to mention 
are three conspiracy theorists, a trio of conspiracy theorists, if you will, Rob Franks, Malik Ismail, and Evangeline Gargula. Malik, Evangeline, and Rob. Thank you to all three. Very good. Thank you very much. Every great idea starts with a minority of one. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses. Okay. And next, we have Adrian Barrett, who is a revolutionary thinker, Matt. He's, mm-hmm. he's on a different, different level, Adrian <laughs> is. <laughs> not better, not worse, just, just different. Different, different. Yeah. Maybe you can spit out that hydrogenated thinking and let yourself feed off of your own thinking. What you really are is an unbelievable thinker and researcher, a thinker that the world doesn't know. Okay. And, and lastly, I will give a shout out to two galaxy-brained gurus. These people, Matt, they are on a different level, a higher sphere. They, they, they barely interact with mere mortals like us on the regular plane. They're, they're playing nine-dimensional chess in heaven with Einstein and Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and, and those, those lucky people are Grammaticus Gore, who we, we know well, but you probably don't remember his username, and Josh Stutman. Josh and Grammaticus Gore. Thank you both. Thank you, you big galaxy green gurus. You're- that's, that's big. You're sitting on one of the great scientific stories that I've ever heard. And you're so polite. And hey, wait a minute. Am I an expert? I kind of am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't trust people at all. Mm, a while since we heard his glorious chuckle. Yes, no more, no more subscribers at that level, please. <laughs> yeah. Can't take it. Like I said, we're going to go into our what do we call it? Our season of self help yep. in the next couple of episodes. And the Aaron Rabinowitz uh, episode is coming up. A bunch of interviews. But Matt, where would people find us on these here interwebs? Should they wish to find out more or follow us on social media? Well, on Twitter, you can find us at Guru's Pod. You can find Chris at, at C underscore Kavanagh and me at Arthur C. Dent. So that's Twitter. You can send us an email at decodingthegurus at gmail.com. Yes. Very good. Keep and, going. <laughs> and um, how else? How else? Well, we're, on oh, fa- yeah, so we're, we- we're on Facebook now. We're on Facebook. We are on Facebook and we are on, I think, Instagram as well. And we have we're, the Patreon. We're, so trying we're, to cultiv- we're trying to cultivate our boomer, the boomer demographic. We feel like that's <laughs> yeah, an yeah. under, under-exploited demographic. So, yeah. Tell your mom and dad. Yeah. And we had someone kindly reach out and agree to help us with the social media stuff as we asked for in the last one. So, save your emails and uh, we'll – I don't know whether he wants us to – mention his name so i'll i'll ask him but you know who you are thank you for yes. your help and uh we appreciate it and uh, yeah they reach out to us on elif and anything if you want link tag me in the lab leak stuff on twitter go ahead it'll it'll <laughs> rile me up uh, <laughs> Do that. have your fun <laughs> seriously <laughs> yeah, 
you'll experience the consequences if you do. But um, yeah, yeah. Chris, yeah so- Chris, Chris seems unable to discover the mute thread button on Twitter, so he just has to respond. He's actually legally obliged to respond to to every annoying tweet. So it yeah. is. It's in the fine print contract of the coding guru. So, so Matt, that's us to end this non rambly, non tangential, full podcast. Thank you very much and gravel at the feet of your muscle master. I will. And I'm looking forward to becoming a better person and to grow and to transcend as I do it. Well, yeah. Penetrate the membrane, open the gates, <laughs> break down the wall and, right. and have a good day. <laughs> drag, myself <laughs> o- drag myself over the pavement for 5,000 years. Yeah. 50,000 yeah. years. All right. Ciao. Ciao. Bye.